There was an idea. Romamu, I come to bargain. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. Baskin Robbins always finds out. I for the faster way. Are you Tony Stank? I am Iron Man. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Assembly Required, an MCU retrospective. I am your host, Eduardo, and this here is the show where we reassemble the MCU piece by piece, movie by movie. We're going through, we're watching them in release order, and today we are talking about Captain America, the first Avenger, and I have assembled the most patriotic platoon to talk about this show with. First off... Mr. Patriotic Platoon himself, it's Peaches. Peaches, what's up, man? Damn it. <laughs> I, I had something, and I don't know why that made me laugh that hard, but... We're just I blinded just, by your patriotism. My I'm patriotism, trying... Yeah. There's going to be alliteration with every episode from now on. Well, platonically, I'm pleased by that <laughs> possibility, partner. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, <laughs> over in um, Fondueville, we've got the Sound Lord and the Mrs. Sound Lord, who is also now social media manager for all things Squad Up and Assembly Required. We've got the Sound Lord, Chris and Angela. What's up, guys? Hey, hey. Hey. What's going on? We have to. Peaches, we need titles. Everybody else is a title now, except for us. I get a different title every time. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know. What is our like? What 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 are we? Uh, uh, we got guy, and other guy. I'm the guy that angrily keeps time while we're recording the episodes, <laughs> and none of it ever works. That's my title. Professional <laughs> timekeeper for all things squat up and assembly oh, Professional bad timekeeper. <laughs> And uh, finally, with us every week, like normal, uh, writer for all things Squad Up and Assembly Required, it's Robbie. Robbie, what's up, man? Hey, not much. Just a little under the weather, but uh, I will try not to cough in the microphone. But, you know, just living the lovely life out here. The lovely life. The the patriotic lovely life. I was trying to think of more alliteration. Try not to to mind comp into the microphone. (laughs) Oh, wow, wow. No, but that's topical. <laughs> it's topic. It oh, it is. Yeah. Unfortunately. Boy. I just, as they the... say, didn't expect to hear that joke. I did. No, never mind. <laughs> I was trying to subvert the expectations, but I didn't set it up well enough. So we're not even going to make that joke now. If all of those World War II references weren't enough, or me talking about it literally at the beginning of the show, we're talking all about Captain America, the first Avenger. And. Our very own Sound Lord here is the biggest Captain America fan that I know. And so I'm going to let him lead us off into the character introduction so you guys get to know who Captain America is. Chris, let us know, who is Steve Rogers? Steve Rogers, Captain America. So, so far, all of the Marvel superheroes that we have met uh, who have had their own movies that we've talked about so far on this show have been created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Yes, yeah, they've all been Jack Kirby so far, I believe. Robbie, shout if I'm wrong. But they've all been introduced in the early 60s, 1962 to 1964. Captain America goes back much farther than that. Back when Marvel was called Timely Comics, they in 1941, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby created Captain America, 
partially as American propaganda during the war. Fun fact, we talk about, you will, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in the show, but the, the first cover of the first Captain America issue featured Captain America punching out Adolf Hitler. This was actually released before the United States officially joined World War II. So it was actually pretty controversial at the time because isolationism was still a big, big policy at that point. So they did not. So it was kind of a big deal that they went that far as saying, well, here's an American guy punching out the Fuhrer. That was a big deal. So the story Almost of like Captain a, like a like an OG political cartoon. Yeah, that's exactly it really. What it yeah, was. it really was. a it, it was a big political statement, really. And it was something. Yeah, uh, you got to remember that a lot of the. Most of the people who were writing for Marvel at the time were Jewish, so that was very important to them. Uh, a lot of them ended up fighting in World War II or, or had served in one way or another during the war. So it was a, it was something that was very personal to them. Uh, I think there's a story about Jack Kirby, who almost went down and punched out uh, an anti-Semite, might have even been a Nazi sympathizer in the U.S., uh, like, who showed up at Marvel and he's like, I'll go down there and punch him out right now if you want. So again, it was, it was really personal <laughs> to them. So the story of Captain America, Steve Rogers, he is given the peak human physique thanks to an experimental super soldier serum. And he leads raids on the Nazis and Japanese secret bases along with his young sidekick who was a child, Bucky, Bucky Barnes. As the forties went on and the war ended, Captain America shifted to fighting communists because of course, uh, but the popularity of both the propaganda and superheroes began to fade. Captain America transitioned to horror and suspense by the end of the decade, and the Captain America ongoing was canceled entirely by the early 50s, and the character was pretty much forgotten as part of the Marvel Universe. Then in 1964, in the fourth issue of The Avengers, Captain America was revealed to have been frozen in the Atlantic for the past two decades. There was a little bit of retconning that had to go on to make that happen. Not really relevant to this discussion here. So the Avengers named Steve Rogers the honorary first Avenger. This was actually Stan Lee's idea, by the way, to revive Captain America, to have him uh, as been, having been frozen during the war and have him revived 20 years later. 20 years. We talk about that. It was 20 years and that was culture shock. And nowadays, because because comics, it's, oh, yes, he was frozen for 70 years. Uh, so, the, so they named him the first Avenger uh, as sort of an honorary title. Captain America is established as a man out of time, heroically leading Earth's mightiest heroes while struggling to adjust to modern America. He began to share tales of suspense with Iron Man shortly after joining the Avengers, and then he got his own new ongoing in 1968. Mostly known for his leadership of the Avengers over the past 50 years, Captain America has remained one of the most recognizable and iconic superheroes. He's often seen along with Spider-Man as, as the mascot of Marvel Comics, definitely one of the most uh, recognizable of any of the Marvel heroes. So moving on to releasing it as a film, there have been many versions, both in film and television of Captain America prior to this 2011 movie, Captain America, the first Avenger. Uh, there were serials done. I forget exactly what decade that was done, but there, there were these old serials done in the theaters. Uh, Evil Knievel, I think played Captain America. Am I, am I getting that wrong? I don't someone, someone know fact check. Yeah, I will fact check that. I know there was a made-for-TV movie where he's basically like an asshole, and that's it was weird. I watched that once. Yeah, but I don't think that was uh, even- might not have been Evil Knievel. I might be remember. I might be getting my wires crossed there. But uh, production began in 2005 when Marvel Studios received funding to independently produce their own films, which began the construction of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
Joe Johnston, who also directed the World War II set superhero film The Rocketeer, excuse me, was brought on to direct. Joe Johnston also, uh, well, he directed Jurassic Park 3. Uh, he worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark. He designed Boba Fett uh, for The Empire Strikes Back. So he, he'd been doing a lot of stuff uh, over the years. Uh, but The Rocketeer is definitely the most relevant, like the one-to-one connection that you can make from The Rocketeer to Captain America, the first Avenger. Early concepts had half of the film set after World War II to embrace that man-out-of-time concept. Uh, the script was given a final pass by Joss Whedon uh, to help set up the Avengers. Uh, with the final script set almost entirely in World War II, there is a slight frame story where the, the film begins and ends in modern times uh, with them having found Captain America's frozen body. And the title is changed to Captain America, the first Avenger. Chris Evans was cast as Captain America. Uh, fun fact, John Krasinski also tested for the role. That would have been a change. I wouldn't have liked that. Yeah, no. <laughs> then we wouldn't I be would able to have him as Mr. Fantastic in the future, right? There That's you go. Everyone wants him. Everyone wants, really everyone wants well. him and uh, uh, Emily Blunt to be uh, Reed and Sue. When they, I would really when like they that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. That's not Right? Yeah, I, like I, I forget where I first saw that, but it's one of those fan castings that has like stuck, and sometimes that comes true because people were doing that with Brie Larson and Captain Marvel. People were doing that with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Doctor Strange, and those all worked out pretty well. So, so fingers crossed. I, I, I'd like to see that a lot. But there's actually a bit of controversy around uh, Chris Evans taking the role, which he almost didn't. They, uh, he was very reluctant to take the role, but we're all so glad he did. He had previously played characters who were not like Steve Rogers at all. He kind of played jerks and a-holes throughout his career up to that point. And he does it very well. Uh, He's doing it again in uh, another movie that's coming out soon, Knives Out, where it looks really good. But again, he's so not Captain America in it. But Uh, Lucas Lee is his best version of that. Just want to say, Lucas Lee from Scott Pilgrim. Yes, yes, he's great in Scott Pilgrim. Uh, And he had already played another Marvel character not that long ago, speaking of the Fantastic Four. He was the Human Torch in the first two Fantastic Four movies. Not the Uh, first Human Torch who then goes on to become another Marvel character. Beloved Marvel character, too. Well, we'll we'll talk about that one later, too, though. (laughs) Right, it all works out. Yeah, they just need to keep making Fantastic Four movies and then just recasting the Human Torch into another role. And whoever that is is going to be awesome. Yeah. So who's going to be Human Torch for the new Fantastic Four that was mentioned? It's going to be John Krasinski before they recast him in the next version of (laughs) Fantastic Four and then make him Mr. Fantastic. He can't play play Mr. Fantastic and Human Torch. Why not? People said he couldn't. uh, This Chris Evans couldn't play Human Torch in Captain America. Yet here we are. Maybe it'll be like one of those Medea movies where John Krasinski just plays everybody. Oh gosh, <laughs> I'd sign up for that. The clumps are. I can't wait for the Marvel universe to get more weird. <laughs> yeah, no, they're uh, they'll actually have Chris Evans and Michael B. Jordan trade off every other scene. That is the object of the Human Torch. Uh, <laughs> the audience a, won't know the difference. That's a joke for two of you out there. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So there's a bit of controversy. Oh, you can't play two different superheroes. That's unheard of. Now it's very heard of. <laughs> We've got Ryan Reynolds as a Green Lantern and Deadpool. We've got all the human torches. We've got uh, Mahershala the, Ali. Yeah. Played, yeah. Um, Sometimes Cotton in the same Mouth universe. And, and Blade. 
J.K. Simmons as two different J. Jonah Jamesons and also Commissioner Gordon. Fantastic. Yeah, no one remembers any of this anymore, and it all looks super stupid. That is what the note says, and that is true. <laughs> See, <it's... laughs> yeah, oh, and we also have the fun thing of there are two Quicksilvers at the same time. Uh, audiences aren't as dumb as studios used to think they were. Moving on, the movie was released in July of 2011, got good reviews, grossed $371 million, which was once considered really good. <laughs> and yet, right, every time we do one of these, I look at these, well, this was, that was good for a superhero movie at the time, and now, like, that's we'd be screaming if an MCU movie made $371 million. That's almost Endgame's first weekend. Although it's a little more than Endgame's first weekend, which insane. is ridiculous. Yeah, I, we don't talk about this too much anymore, but I want to talk about my introduction into um, Captain America. I know Robbie has, but has anybody else watched the Spider-Man animated series? Oh, yeah. Well, you said Robbie has. <laughs> um, so the Spider-Man animated series has this weird storyline with Captain America, where Captain America and the Red Skull, the reason why you haven't seen Captain America for so long is they are trapped in like an alternate dimension where they're basically frozen in time fighting each other. And if you unfreeze Captain America, uh, you will unfreeze the Red Skull. I forgot about that. You're and right. so you, you, you then move on into the uh, another storyline where the Red Skull injects his son with like a super soldier serum and it doesn't work out like it's supposed to and it gives his son electricity powers and his son puts on a green mask with a lightning bolt and calls himself Electro. What? <laughs> the Spider-Man animated series was a wild time. And then Spider-Man didn't totally. invite him to his birthday party. <laughs> and just last night I realized for the oh first my time God. in my life that uh, uh, Hank Azaria was Venom on that show. Really? Interesting. Yeah, just realized that last night on rewatching some some old episodes and I immediately recognized that Mo Sizlak was inside the symbiote. <laughs> uh all right let's start in let's start talking about what the movie the movie opens up we are in where are we in moscow we're in tonsberg norway we're in that is not moscow also i'm on the wrong notes yeah we are in norway yeah we're we're in the same place that thor began tonsberg norway (laughs) interesting (laughs) but that makes sense Mm -hmm. um Nazi Germany. Uh, we we find Hydra. We get introduced to oh, actually. Hydra you know, we're in the we're in the ice first. The, yeah, that's true. It does actually ship. start in the ice. I didn't mention right. that. Yeah. And in modern times. The ship in modern times, and then it goes underwater, and that's where we find the. Te- no, no. We then move on to Germany or they, to Norway, and that's where they find the Tesseract. They see Captain America this movie. In the ice. <laughs> Literally like hours ago. <laughs> yeah, we we finished up and then came right here. I had an observation. <laughs> but did you watch um, the movie? I, I sure did. <laughs> um, the first scene where they find the ship in the ice, um, I thought kind of had a bit of a Titanic vibe, or at least like kind of like the yep. first scene of Titanic where they're underwater looking for the remnants of the ship and, you know, hmm. they end up finding this treasure, um, the heart of the ocean. And you I even think, get it at the end of the movie where they're using the little drone to pick the up the Tesseract. Yeah. Yep, yeah. I had that same feeling at the Tesseract discovery. Yeah. I, I never made that and connection that, before. None of this, <laughs> no, I, this did not occur to me until literally today when we watched the movie again. <laughs> the old lady threw it in the ocean in the end. <laughs> the old lady <laughs> threw the Tesseract in the ocean. <laughs> well, baby, I went down and got it for you. Wow. <laughs> Britney Spears music videos. We got the deep cuts here. Uh, 
You should. <laughs> we then move on to see. We meet Steve Rogers. We meet Chris Evans. Ask Steve Rogers, uh, and he's. A, we didn't he's really a, talk about the Tonsberg scene, though. We didn't. The, this the is very important. Find, it introduces the, the main villain and the MacGuffin. Does it really introduce the, the main villain? Movies. Yes, it does. Sort of. We he, we he find comes in and murders Argus Filch. <laughs> Well, like Chris okay, said, so he does order Filch. The the town in Norway is the one we see in the beginning of Thor, and um, connects Norse mythology to the Tesseract, and I think that then kind of sets up Thor knowing about the Tesseract and the Avengers. Like he clearly has knowledge about it because it used to be in Odin's treasure room, so like he knows what it is. Like I just I thought that was a nice setup and kind of callback, you know, tr- starting to kind of connect all the pieces leading up to maybe the reason i didn't say any of that is because i didn't put it together until right the second oh so (laughs) is there ever a piece anywhere in the mcu that establishes how the tesseract was just sitting on earth the uh i'm trying to think i i believe i think and this could just be headcanon fan theorying but with it with tonsberg having been the site where Odin fought the frost, the frost giants in 892 or whatever year it was. I think it's implied that it was a gift from Odin to the people of Earth. That's that's kind of how I interpreted it, at least. That's may, not necessarily canon, not necessarily true, but that was how I took it. Is I feel like they said it in the same city, specifically to say Odin has been here. You left the Tesseract here. You notice that it's being guarded, and it has been guarded for hundreds of years at this point, uh, like almost a, like over a thousand years actually at this point. So it's, uh, I took it as saying that yes, Odin left this for the people of Midgard in the worst Tesseract. hiding spot of all time because they open the tomb. Red Skull opens the tomb, and there's this like amateur glass blower our version of a cube in there and he's like yeah clearly i'm not this stupid and then there's just a button protruding from a snake's eyeball on the wall and i wonder where they're hiding this thing (laughs) like come on he didn't even investigate he looked on the wall and it was that obvious did anyone else get elrond vibes when he looks at the the tree on the wall and he says like or something he said something it sounded very like (laughs) I got <laughs> Matrix vibes with his costume later in the movie. Angela, you weren't on the last episode where I extensively dragged everyone through me talking about Tolkien pulling from Nordic mythology when doing his writings. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it does. Um, I also, things I noticed on this rewatch that I had not noticed before is how they build up to him being Red Skull um, in just this first scene where you meet him. Um, I noticed for the first time the like on the side of his face, like beneath his ear, like the seam of where his mask is uh, with the red kind of showing through. And also I thought it was interesting too, when, um, when he kills Filch (laughs) um, and the blood gets on his jacket and you see when they zoom in on his Hydra brooch and there's blood just on the skull part of it. Red Skull. I don't know. Like yeah. it's, no, it's it's a small it's thing, but I thought, oh, that's clever. That's I all. Get it because his skull's red. Well, it was really fun foreshadowing <laughs> at the time that I this movie came out. 
I just assumed, I, I knew Red Skull was in it, but I just assumed he's going to be called Red Skull, but they won't make him have a literal Red Skull. Because at this point, I still didn't trust that we actually felt like showing acknowledgement of our of our sources. And this was still when we made made these superhero movies, you know. Oh, we got to make it like be a real world context. And so, yeah, later when he actually rips off his mask and saw a skull, like that's when I, that's, I had already bought into the MCU because I saw Avengers first, but like, I was really sold when they actually had Red Skull. Yeah. The movie then moves on, and we finally are introduced to Steve Rogers. He is a gangly, very skinny Steve Rogers. I want to talk very quick second about how well they did skinny Steve Rogers slash Chris Evans, because it looks really good. Um, But Chris, you have lots of feelings about Chris Evans in this role, and I'm going to agree with a lot of the things you're about to say, but Chris Evans is the perfect casting for this role, even if it wasn't originally thought so, correct? Absolutely, yes. Uh, everyone, the entire the entire movie is cast perfectly, but we got it. It starts with the hero. It starts with Steve Rogers. Captain America is the kind of character who could very easily be written off as corny, and he makes it work. He really does. He brings a sincerity to the role. He truly believes, like you truly believe, that Steve Rogers believes what he represents. He represents America at its best, as it's supposed to be, as standing up for the little guy. He he looks like... The, at one point, Dr. Erskine says that you don't have to be a perfect soldier to stay what you are, a good man. But he is a, uh, a perfect soldier in the sense that he doesn't want to go out there and kill people. You know, a lot of movies, when they talk about the perfect soldier, it's like the Terminator. It's someone who's going to go out there and is just a killing machine. Steve Rogers is not that. He says he doesn't want to kill anyone, but he doesn't like bullies no matter where they're from. And he sells it. Every bit of of him wanting to do something while, while his country is at war, you believe it. Everything about him wanting to stand up for the little guy, because he is the little guy, you believe it. And it's just, he sells the pre-transformation Steve so well, he, he is he just does such a great job with that that you're like, okay, yeah, I can see why he wants to do this. And then when he does transform and he stays that good man and he is, again, he is the, what, what, the, what do they call it? The peak physical specimen or, or whatever the, the, the wording was, but at his heart, he is still Steve Rogers and that's what makes him Captain America. And it starts in this movie and continues throughout the entire franchise from here, all the Avengers movies, all the Captain America movies. It's just perfect. And, his performance is a big reason why Captain America is personally my favorite Marvel hero. And I, I agree with that so much. And I think it has a lot to do with the the heroes around Captain America. I think you've got a lot of bad boys and, you know, guys that are, you know, they're a little, they're a little edgy and all this stuff. And then you've got a guy that's just, he's just a good person. You know, Uh, there was a little while ago and this is going to get a little off topic, but the Nintendo switch, we all have one and super Mario Odyssey came out. And in an era where video games were very, you know, dark and gritty and, you know, very serious to have such a refreshingly light and a joyful take. I think it's, I think you can find parallels to that and what you're getting with something like Steve Rogers, because, because it is something so it's very pure. It is a very, you know, you 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 want to emulate. That's the kind of person, you know, if I had a daughter, that's like the kind of guy I want my daughter to bring home. Like that is, you know, it is 
every bit of a respectful person. And it, it sort of embodies, especially with us as Americans, what we would consider to be, you know, the, the ideal American. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a hero. And, and I agreed right. with basically everything that uh, Chris said. It was a lot of what I took from this movie. I felt like Chris Evans carried this movie. I think this is a, an entertaining but uns, unspectacular movie, except for, geez, Captain Rogers is just about one of the most compelling film characters I've ever seen. And it started immediately. His first scene in the movie, he's just relatable and embraceable and fun. And I just really, really liked that. And then he just does it through the whole movie. He's just so, his humility, his sense of humor, his heroism, it's just such a great, fantastic character. And I just, I think that the MCU in general, this whole retrospective here, owes a lot to what Chris Evans and what the people writing for him put together in bringing Captain America to the film. And that wasn't necessarily something that was going to be good. Captain America was kind of a corny character and they kind of embraced that, but still made it something that, they brought out that that essential heroism and did a great job making it something you wanted to see on screen, and I love that. And I agree with what Chris said about the casting top to bottom is fantastic. I think um, Red Skull isn't necessarily given that much to do in this movie, but Hugo Weaving, when he is on screen, he's chewing up the scenery, and it's just great the way that they form this basically two sides of the same coin um, sort of thing. Like, they're both super soldiers, but have used that power in very different ways. Uh, and I think that in particular that that duality, but mostly Chris Evans just absolutely is what makes this film tick. What if good, you know what bo- I- good guy, but bad. <laughs> right. Which is what Red Skull always was, but they, they sure. pulled that off very well in the movie. It's also, you, you think about Marvel characters and Marvel casting choices in general, and you sort of have two schools of thought. You have the lightning in the bottles, right? You've got your Robert Downey Juniors. I would count Chris Evans in that where you stru- you know, you've captured lightning in a bottle. You've got this guy that is perfect for the role. And then you have other characters that are sort of trained up for their roles. I think Chris Hemsworth is one of those characters where he didn't necessarily know what he was doing with the role at first, not completely, but as he has gone on and played the character, um, he has sort of refined it. Chris Evans, from the very beginning was the perfect Captain America, and that didn't stop throughout the entirety of the MCU. Well, and I don't know if you guys have ever interacted with him in person, uh, but he is... Um, it's weird that he plays bad boys because he is Steve Rogers in person. Like, he is very genuine and very, very... Um, he has a sense of humor, but he's very uh, interested in... When he meets you, he is very interested in who you are as a human being, and there's a lot of humility, and so... It's strange to me because having now met the guy, he's perfect for this part and not all the other parts he had previously played. And this has been humble brag with Robbie. No, it was not a humble brag. I didn't mean that. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. It was not I mean, humble. He was completely <laughs> egotistical about it. <laughs> no, just it casually dropping. Oh yeah, and having met him. I, no, no, no. It, it, it's, I, I came this close. <laughs> you know, I haven't met him, but I have seen him on Ellen, so I think I can agree with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he does. He comes across as a very genuine person yeah genuine's a good way to put it we then get introduced to uh james buchanan barnes or bucky as we will come to know him and later on the winter soldier as we will come to know him um and barnes is steve's best friend they were uh best friends since they were kids correct yes best friends since they were kids from which uh, is a change from comics okay yeah because in the in the comics he's like a a kid that looks up to him he's robin he's He's robin yeah he's mm -hmm. right 
Um, Barnes and Rogers attend the Stark Expo with some some ladies, uh, <laughs> and uh, in true Steve Rogers fashion, he's kind of uncomfortable about the whole thing. And as he's speaking to Bucky about why he's uncomfortable, why he wants to serve his country, um, Doctor Abraham Erskine—did I say that correctly, Erskine? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Abraham Erskine, a German defector who is the one that is initializing this this super soldier serum, the super soldier test that they're going to do eventually on Captain America, notices him. Um, and Peaches, you wanted to talk about Dr. Erskine in general because um, he does fantastic in this movie. And, you know, I, I, I hadn't thought about it until I started watching this movie, but this movie is star-studded. This movie has a, an incredible cast of real, like, any single one of these actors that are in this movie could have been lice, like tagged to play the lead, not necessarily in Captain America, but in a Marvel movie. And I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I am not the biggest Captain America fan compared to the rest of you here. So I'll say that in general, watching this movie, I had a lot of fun and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, but I, overall, didn't write a lot of notes down. I was finding that I I didn't have a lot of specific comments to write while I was taking notes. But the one thing that really stuck in my mind was how well Erskine's character just comes across. Every single moment that he is on screen, every everything that he is in in the whole movie, it just feels, he feels just as genuine as Steve Rogers most of the time. And when he's not, being really genuine or helpful to Steve. He's, you know, making lighthearted jokes when he, you know, later in the film, when they're talking in the boot camp and, you know, it's after Steve has thrown himself on top of the grenade. And at this point, Erkstein is sure that he was the right choice for the super soldier serum. You know, he hands him a glass of, of some alcohol that's been aged for a long time. And, Steve's about to take a drink of that. He's like, no, you can't. No fluids. <laughs> you can't take that. And tomorrow then and he's like, no, nah, I already poured it. And he drinks both of them. <laughs> and he's just yeah. such a he's just such a good, fun character. Like, I, I kind of want him to be my relative. You know, like <laughs> he's he's just fun to watch. And and Stanley Tucci, Tucci, right? Yeah. Tucky? Stanley Tucci. Yeah. Tuck, 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 tuck. I don't know. Stanley Tucci just plays him really well. And. I, I want more Irksign, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. It's Stanley Tucci is one of those actors who everything he's in, he's a highlight. You get yes. like a warm yes, he's fantastic. when yeah. he's on screen. One of the best character actors working today, I think. That feeling that you're getting, Peaches, of I want more of this character and I'm sad they didn't continue in the MCU, I have found myself feeling that way every movie that we have watched. There has been a character with at least um, someone. Yeah. Of someone where I'm like, man, I wish they had continued on in the MCU, like off the top of my head already hammer in Iron Man two. Like I wish we had gotten more hammer. Like there, I can see that. And like, it's an interesting um, thing to think about because I don't think I, any of that would have clicked in my head unless we did this MCU rewatch. But you know what? I think that the adoration that people have for his portrayal of Irksign is the same way that Steve ends up feeling about him as a character because it's he's the he's really the first person that actually believed in Steve. You know, Steve is he he wanted to join the army, he wanted to make a difference. He tried to lie his way into the army because nobody would listen to him and um Erkstein comes along and he actually puts some stock in him and I think that makes it all the more valuable when he ultimately 
does perish because I mean, we've, we've already talked about how Steve is already this just example of a human being and he doesn't really need any more motivation to be a good human being, but Erksine being shot kind of lights that extra fire under his ass, under America's ass, if you will. And (laughs) I think, I think it just takes that motivation to the next level, you know, like I think he had to die as part of the story, which is sad, but I think that because of how endearing he is as a character to both the audience and to Steve, it just works well for all parties involved. If that no, makes I completely sense. Agree. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for somebody who is so calm collected for somebody who's so respectful that, you know, the way um, Steve Rogers is, he goes through a lot of pain in this movie. Um, and he, he sort of goes through a lot of pain throughout the entirety of the MCU up until the very end up until the end of his character arc, right? But eventually we will get that that relief when he finally ends up with Peggy. Now, we then move on to the super the super soldier camp, if you will, where Steve is with the other sort of standouts of the sort of candidates for this super soldier serum. And we get introduced to Agent Peggy Carter, um, who is running intelligence on Hydra. She's assisting the super soldier program. And Angela, I know that you absolutely love Agent Peggy Carter. So please gush about Peggy Carter in (laughs) podcast form. Go ahead. Yay. So (laughs) Margaret Peggy Carter, um, I'm going to just give a tiny bit of backstory on her, like who she was in the comics prior to the films. Um, She was created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Uh, She first appeared unnamed in Tales of Suspense, which Chris mentioned earlier. Um, And she was actually blonde in the comics. She was a love interest of Steve Rogers in his World War II flashbacks. And um, then next she appeared as Sharon Carter's older sister in Captain America 161 in the 70s. And then they retconned her as Sharon's aunt due to the unaging nature of comic book characters. Uh, they messed around with her a little more um, in like other versions. So there was a House of M storyline in 2005. No uh, more mutants. It was a, an alternate reality in which Cap was never frozen in the Arctic and instead married Peggy shortly after World War II ended. Um, and then another version was on Earth-65, which was an alternate Earth that was part of the 2014-2015 Spider-Man storyline, Spider-Verse. And she was the longtime director of S.H.I.E.L.D. and actually wore the Nick Fury eye patch. <laughs> Whoa. Was, yeah. Wait, why, That's why do you, really cool. I want to that now. I don't know. What happens with becoming director of S.H.I.E.L.D. that you lose one of your eyes? Yeah. <laughs> well, what is it? Eduardo, didn't you just get the Spider-Verse omnibus? Yeah, I have it around well, here somewhere. Let I've me know when you it. get to that point. Okay. okay. <laughs> So anyway, but why why I love her so much, why she's, I I believe she is my favorite character in the MCU is, I, I feel like sometimes the reason you have a favorite character is because you relate to them slash you want to be them. Um, and so she's this badass brunette. I love that she's brunette. Sorry. Um, she's a great personality. She's reasonable. She's logical. She's smart. She's kind. Um, she's a real person. Um She's self-sufficient. Um, she's an excellent shot, like when she shoots the guy in the taxi from far away. Holy crap, that's one of the yeah. best shots in the Isn't movie. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And who needs I, Hawkeye? I find her more interesting than like Natasha Romanoff, just because I I prefer Peggy's personality. I prefer her her personality, her um, her skills, the way that she sees the world, um, what her goals are, all that stuff. Um, similar to the points I was making in the Iron Man 2 episode about how they portrayed Natasha, I feel like Peggy was not sexualized in this movie. It made her even more intriguing as just a strong character. Um, even when she comes into the bar in her red dress and everyone kind of stops and looks at her, it, it's like, it's a symbol of power. It's not even like, ooh, here's my sexy dress. It was just, it was a powerful dress. Just like how people say someone wears like a power suit. It was like a power dress. Um, she shuts guys down who try to hit on her. She punches the one guy in the face. The first time we meet her, that's like the first thing she does. So deserved. And, yeah, and then later Bucky kind of tries to, to hit on her in front of Steve and she just completely it's like he's not even in the room. What a great scene. Yes. Yeah. Um and I love that throughout the movie she's not treated as Steve's love interest. I mean she kind of is but there's more to her than that. She's his partner. She helps him escape the the camp so that he can go to save the 107th. And and I think I think it's cool just the underlying theme of the underdog you know, Steve, when he was a scrawny kid, was an underdog and she saw something in him because she also, because she was a woman in the 40s in, in the army, like she was an underdog herself. So I think she saw some of herself in Steve. Um, so, yeah, that's I just really, really love her. And then I cannot say enough. <laughs> you know, I, I can already tell that both of you have a real adoration. And not that I didn't already know this, but yeah. both of you have a real adoration for this movie and these characters. And I, I can I can tell that myself, Peaches, and Robbie have sort of we we've watched a different movie than you guys because of the love <laughs> that you guys have for this for this movie and this film. And I can't wait for to, to get that movie to get to that movie for me. And I'm excited that we're gonna get yeah. to talk about this for you. And I'm especially excited to talk about all the things that we didn't like with this movie and then right. have you guys disagree with us. Yeah, I can't wait to hear why you're <laughs> wrong. Yeah. Uh, I as a side note, that's one of the great things about the MCU is that there's a different movie for everyone too. Like different movies in this whole franchise, they're all different enough. You know, everyone talks about oh the Marvel style, the Marvel style, but they're all different enough that a movie might hit a different person completely differently, you know, like Captain America's my favorite uh, of the heroes. And I love this movie, uh, but Iron Man might be that for someone else or Thor or Black Panther. And I just think it's great that it has so much to offer as, as a, as a cinematic universe. So and, much so you know, that a bunch of sweaty guys would make a podcast about it. I don't know why sweaty. we're, why we have to be uh, sweaty. But you <laughs> yeah, maybe Florida? I'm just, Maybe I'm just projecting myself right now. I'm not yeah. currently sweaty. I'm not sweaty or a guy. Yeah. I That's mean, a good point. When I got you're guys pretty lady. There's a chance that when you're listening to this recording, I am sweaty, but currently, at the time of recording, not sweaty. <laughs> Noted. Um, we then move on to Carter and Erskine are convincing are convinced that Rogers is perfect for the program despite his physical failings due to his character. His character, we, we were gonna, it's going to be a recurring theme as we talk about this movie. But Steve Rogers' character is a sort of a plot device in and of itself, right? Whenever you think someone would take the easy road, Chris Evans and Steve Rogers take the high road. Same thing. <laughs> now we get that really fun scene with 
<laughs> with Tommy Lee Jones, a.k.a. Agent K, because he plays the same character in every movie, which is literally just himself, um, where he he's not convinced about Steve and he throws the grenade and all the other guys scurry and and Steve jumps on the grenade. And it's a, it's a really incredible scene. And, and, and um, Peaches, he, we also get another scene about the flag. And I think knowing how you feel about intelligence and knowing how you, the, the sort of characters that you relate to, I could tell already why this scene speaks to you. Yeah. So <laughs> I just love, I love pre super serum Steve, man, there is a lot of alliteration in this episode. <laughs> we, you weren't kidding. I, I, I just like the scrawny version of him too, because you know, he's, he's not only got this character that's just just and, and right and whatever. He's just so smart too. They're doing that drill where they're all running and the, the leaders like, you know, whoever, no one's gotten that flag down in blah, blah, however many years, uh, whichever one of you gets that flag down from the pole gets to ride in the cart with, with Peggy like first of all why are you objectifying her by saying the reward is riding in the car with her she doesn't care about you shut up <laughs> second okay cool so they're all they're all like dogpiling this pole and they all give up and they start running and just Steve comes up to it pulls the pin the flagpole falls to the ground he just picks the flag up off of the ground crappily folds it up and hands it to the sergeant or whatever his his role is and he's like thanks and there's no way in hell that anybody would actually get away with that in the army if you if you were that much of a smart ass during a drill you would be in so much trouble but because he's steve they're like oh i guess we never thought of that (laughs) why didn't we do that you know, that scene was actually added in reshoots because they felt like they needed to demonstrate before he got the serum that he actually was intelligent and clever. Oh, really? Yeah. So well, they, it worked they wanted out. to establish that. It worked out well, but it's 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 partially relatable because you're like, yo, if I were in the army, I'd be that same guy. Like I'm not I've never been as skinny as pre serum Steve Rogers but I would also not be able to keep up with anybody. And I'd also be a smart ass enough to go, Oh, the flag has not come down. I'm just going to pull the pin, whatever. Except, you know, they ream my ass after that. So it just worked out really well. It was a good scene. I I like his character. He's relatable that way. And, and, you know, GG well played. (laughs) It's almost like we've touched on this a hundred times this episode, but the strength of Marvel characters is how relatable they are to you. Right. So um, we, we think of, the most successful Marvel characters in the MCU and are the ones that are most relatable. Talk Spider-Man, right? Spider-Man is this relatable figure because he relates to every 15-year-old nerd out there because you imagine yourself in that way, this this person that is not, you know, it's the, the Marvel way, whereas um, something like DC doesn't necessarily fit that mold. Now, the movie moves on. We go to Austria where Schmidt begins harnessing the power of his newly found Tesseract. And he, he indicates that he no longer is, is seeing eye to eye with Herr Fuhrer, uh, Adolf Hitler. Oh, that's who that is? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> he then creates this big cannon. And let me talk about this for a sec. So I have I take issue with 
the technology in the movie because it not because I, I don't think it's like a good plot device or anything of that sort. I think for me personally, it just sort of took me out of the time period. It took me out of everything that was going on. Everything that had happened so far, including injecting Steve with the super serum, I felt like it still could happen in that time period. It all felt very grounded. The sort of think about the technology Stark was using. It was turning big, you know, these 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 big wheels, and it was it was yeah, all yeah. like sort of like steamy, and like it all felt very of the time period, very real. Whereas when you get to sort of these lasers, is it just me, or did they use the exact same sound bite of Tony Stark's repulsor cannons in his hands? They for those did, cannons? and that's on purpose. It's on purpose. Yeah, because it's supposed to be implied. You can extrapolate Howard Stark finds the Tesseract, decides to build the arc reactor based on that. And uh, I think think that was an intentional choice. They wanted you to think about that. Man, the Tesseract is supposed to set off the energy race. That makes sense. But the only thing I could think about while watching it was this doesn't make any sense at the time. Like my favorite part of this movie is how grounded it is in it is in its time period how everything is of that time period even the sort of the way the movie is shot the color scale is of a, of a very particular style and those sort of lasers and things like that kind of uh kind of took me out of it yeah i agree with that um and somewhere in my research and i couldn't find it again when i knew you were going to talk about this but i found uh, joe johnston talking about wanting that all this technology looks like it would have been around um, at the start of World War II, and or I guess near the end of World War II. But um, and he said, except we made exceptions for the Tesseract uh, technology, and I guess get that's a choice. But I'm with you. I'm not sure I like that choice. At the very least, I think you could have shown this is Tesseract technology that wasn't so. Here's Star Wars in the 1940s. Because I, I agree with you, it's not. It doesn't ruin the movie for me. But every time there's some sort of tesseract gun, I get pulled out of the movie. Um, and I agree with you on that. Um, however, I know that Chris will yell at us about this. I won't yell. <laughs> I, I just say that I, there is a line from Howard Stark where he's examining the Hydra submarine that they found, and he said, "Look, I can say I'm the best engineer in the country. I have no idea what makes this work, and it's supposed to set up Hydra." as this really advanced threat. They have the Tesseract and they have geniuses on their side who have created this incredible technology that's so far beyond us. It's I think it's supposed to set up because we all know how World War II ends and it ends with the Nazis losing. So they have to really set up Hydra as this real threat, even more threatening than the real Nazis. And with the Tesseract, of course, the Tesseract becoming a very important MacGuffin throughout the whole MCU, but specifically for this movie, at, that's what makes it not just a war movie. This is what makes it, okay, we need a superhero for this. So I think that it is an important thematic choice. And seeing that it is, okay, we have just your regular soldiers up against this crazy advanced, uh, this crazy advanced weaponry, I, I think that's supposed to up the stakes a little bit. I also think this isn't a new concept for a World War II timepiece um, because I don't know if any of you have played like the Wolfenstein games, but in Return to Castle Wolfenstein, they are, there's this, you know, deep science division, um, very heavily based in, you know, they study the occult and all that stuff. Um, Just like in this, just like in 
Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, they touch a lot on the Nazis that are, you know, searching out these artifacts of the occult that have these supernatural powers and all that. But anyway, in uh, Wolfenstein, you come across a Tesla gun, you know, a death ray kind of gun. And that's a real thing that was kind of a theoretical weapon back in the 20s and 30s, you know. And so I think this, you know, utilizing the Tesseract as an energy source for that kind of gun is not a new concept to something, you know, something that's sci-fi set, set in the 40s. So I definitely agree with that. I think the finding the Tesseract and the using the Tesseract fit right in with a lot of Nazi stuff um, from popular fiction. Like, I... I did play Wolfenstein games, but I'm talking about like the original Wolfenstein, uh, but that you're right. That was a thing there. And you're right about Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think it's just the actual, the actual weaponry that showed up. It's not that it came from the Tesseract. Um, I think it just, the actual weapons themselves seemed like the machinery going into them seemed a little bit too out of the time we were into. Um, but uh, uh, I, I can clearly see that Eduardo and I are getting outnumbered on this. I don't think you're outnumbered, but I think you're going to stay uh, evenly matched if it's two versus two, because I'm like 50-50 on this one. I will say, when, you're, when you've when you got a period piece and it's set at a certain time, and then you have this portion of it that is severely out-aging the rest of it, it does feel weird. Like Those scenes do feel, hey, on my left is an old thing, and on my right is a really new thing. But at the same time... The Tesseract is literally alien technology. It's it's we find out that it's got an infinity stone in it and it's got all this crazy alien power that we don't know about. It makes sense that it would be sort of death ray y. And you know, I for some reason this makes me think of of just like the Roswell episode of Futurama <laughs> where it's set in the past and they're dissecting Zoidberg and you know Zoidberg is kind of weird for that time maybe the Tesseract is Zoidberg in this case <laughs> <laughs> I think That's I'll the say second time we've referenced that why not Tesseract <laughs> yeah. I think I'll say my piece and say that for me personally I think I, I agree with Robbie that I think the it's the construction of the weapon that sort yes. of takes me out of it not necessarily using and utilizing the test record itself and for me personally i think my favorite part about captain america and about the captain america sort of movies i think i hearken back to winter soldier and the elevator scene and sort of the combat in the movie and the visceralness and the realness of that and that's my favorite part of these series like the captain america series in general that we have these gigantic explosive type movies like iron man and we have these cosmic figures like the guardians of the galaxy and thor but for me the part of captain america that i enjoy the most is that he's just a dude he is he is a guy obviously he's a super soldier and he's got all these other things but he's a guy and he's and he's taking on real threats and real things that that seem real to me like the dismantling of hydra in in the winter soldier and i think that's why i think i take the most issue is that i just want to see him honestly i could take a movie of just seeing Steve Rogers just live his day to day life. Like, can I get like the Steve Rogers rom com? Because I would watch oh gosh, that movie. <laughs> I want to watch Steve Rogers awkwardly date for a while. Um, real, real quick, uh, just right before we start talking about the weapons, you mentioned you were talking about the time period and how the movie was shot, and I just wanted to say I 100 percent agree with you on that. I love that it it looks kind of like an old fashioned movie. And one thing I wrote down actually that I just wanted to bring up is the scenes that are set in Brooklyn. It looks like it was shot on a back lot 
And I mean that as a very good thing. Like I loved that, how there is a bit of artifice to it where it looks like this is a movie and it feels like a movie in a very, very specific and good way. Like you don't feel like you're watching necessarily a real thing. Like, okay, you can tell it wasn't shot on location. It was a set that was built, but for the kind of movie that it is and that it's hearkening back to, I think that's perfect for it. I love that. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, We then move on. Erskine explains that Schmidt was the first attempt at a super soldier, Schmidt being the Red Skull. Um, But it deformed him. He he says a line that I think is really evocative where he talks about how the super soldier serum takes what is in you and reflects it out. So if you are good, it'll make you, you know, it'll, it'll bring that goodness out. Whereas if you are bad, it'll bring out the worst parts of you, which was what inevitably ended up deforming the Red Skull. Now, Rogers then goes into he goes into this tank and he takes the super soldier serum and he becomes the Steve Rogers that we know. And Chris Evans is like absolutely jacked in this. I don't know why I always talk about people being jacked in all these movies, but when he steps out of this thing, this dude is like, this dude is ripped, like ripped. Like he's got the biggest man boobs I've ever seen in my entire Mm -hmm. life. Like those things are gigantic and could smother me. <laughs> well, that sounded like you were kind of hoping for it. Hey, hey, Chris Evans is a is a good looking dude. All right, I'm not gonna say that if Chris Evans walked in my door and was like Eduardo, take me, I wouldn't jump into his arms. Like I'm not saying that wouldn't <laughs> happen. Okay, uh, Agent Carter then goes and so there's a there's a Hydra agent that ends up killing erskine and steals the last vial of super soldier serum and both agent carter and steve rogers go after him agent carter then has this really cool scene where she shoots the getaway driver in the head like like far away and just like boom like right into his little like right into his forehead i realize that everybody who's listening right now can't actually see what i'm doing and i look like a really stupid unicorn but it goes right (laughs) through the top of his head um and Rogers uh, jumps into action. He, he stops the spies. He saves a kid, but doesn't really actually save the kid because he honestly <laughs> doesn't really do anything. The kid just kind of saves himself. The guy like throws like, oh, this will work. We'll just throw the kid in the river. And the kid's like, well, I can swim because obviously. Um, I like now- that, that scene though, because. Oh, yeah. Because I didn't say it was a bad was- scene. No, I know. But I just want to really quickly reflect on that scene. I- it won't be a long reflection. It's just that. The kid can swim and he doesn't need saving, but Steve doesn't know that. And his first response, even with a guy he's trying to catch, is to help this kid. And I think that's just another great reflection of his character. Yeah. And yeah, it's I like, dude, go. What are you doing? <laughs> I like that they did away with the trope of helpless child or, you know, helpless whoever, you know, sure. instead it's right. someone who was in trouble, but now they're not. And they're like, okay, go, go. It's okay. Right. Like, why wouldn't he know how to swim? They didn't have a Nintendo switch at that time. period. (laughs) He's probably playing outside all the time. Right. Also shout out to the, uh, the taxi door that has the star on it that he uses as a shield. Oh man. That's a good touch. Yeah. You know, every time in this movie before when he uses a fake shield, I geek out until he actually gets the shield. The garbage can yes, lid yeah, in the yeah. alley. Yeah, the garbage will do. <laughs> <laughs> um, where were we? We were talking about how he saves the child, and then we 
we, Chris, you wanted to talk, I think you, you just touched on it just a moment ago, but you wanted to talk about this, the time period. You wanted to talk about the timepiece. You wanted to talk, um, I think it had to do with the, the submarine that they used and some of the technology that they're using and some of sort of the timepiece in general and um, how the movie sort of embraces the, the character inside the timepiece. Yes, yeah, it's a uh, yeah. What I, what I really love about it, and we've touched on it quite a bit, just because it's so prevalent through the whole film. But the 1940s setting, uh, the uh, the montage that we're going to get a little bit later with the USO scenes, all of that, how it's just embracing that, and it embraces it in a very earnest way. And I think it's great that you actually put this in the notes right here because this is exactly why I wrote it. Was after. I wrote it right after the quote, go get him, I can swim. Because there's just something, there is an earnestness to it that you don't always see in in movies in general nowadays. It almost feels like people are allergic to sincerity. And it's embracing, again, this this hopeful, iconic character. And I mean iconic in the literal sense. Right? Captain America is an icon. That shield represents something. And... It, the, the movie is not afraid of that. And in fact, it uses it as a strength. The kid going, go get him. I can swim. Just the people embracing Captain America and, and the character, Steve, uh, not Steve. That's the character's name. Chris Evans playing that so sincerely. It all ties together. And it just, it's something, as I said, you don't see it in movies in general, definitely not in superhero movies, maybe a bit more now. And I feel like this movie kind of helped to uh, pave the way for that. Uh, uh, a, a note I wrote here, and it's actually something that we discussed earlier uh, in in our group chat preparing for this episode. But the uh, the it's the opposite of Zack Snyder with Superman because if you watch a Man of Steel, if you watch Batman versus Superman, you kind of get the feeling that Zack Snyder doesn't actually like Superman. Yep, he does not like the character. He probably thinks the character is corny and boring and old, and wanted to bring a new sensibility to it, whereas. You can, you can imagine someone doing that with Captain America. It has been done with Captain America. I think of that panel from the Ultimates where he's like, you think the A on my head stands for France? And it's just like he's this very jingoistic kind of figure. And you can definitely see someone deconstructing Captain America like that. But this movie doesn't deconstruct. And at a time when superhero deconstructionism was the thing. Uh, you know, we're a few years removed from the Watchmen movie. Again, Zack Snyder, which is kind of the Ur example of deconstructing superheroes. Uh, the Bat, uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, not quite a deconstruction, but definitely more in the realistic uh, vein. Whereas this one, it's like, hey, he's the 1940s superhero. He's a 1940s character. We're going to do a 1940s character, and we're going to make him the again an iconic symbol, and we're going to make it work. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think. Um... I don't think this movie works without all of that, right? I don't think it works without the earnestness. I don't think it works without... Um, I mean, there are parallels to the way this movie is shot. Like, the movie reminds me um, to a lot, a lot um, to Saving Private Ryan in the way that it's shot in this World War II sort of film-grainy type, uh, muted colors, and um, the, the only sort of spark of color in this movie is Steve Rogers, aside from... Peggy Carter's lipstick. Um, but a lot of the sort of the, the spark of color and spark of, of joy of this movie is going to be Captain America. This movie sparks joy. I will keep it. <laughs> I got that reference. 
and I understood that reference. So we end up back with Erskine, and he, we, you know, we we already find out that he's dead. He has been shot. Um, Rogers then becomes a sensation. He decides, you know, he's he's given the choice between be a lab rat or go off and inspire the American people to donate their money to the war efforts. And he decides to do that. He's dubbed Captain America. He goes on tour throughout the United States of America. And this is where the movie for me starts to slow down. No. Um, yep. And I can't, I, I, I knew you guys were going to take a uh, disagreement. Uh, we're going to disagree with that. But it's and, such a great song. Boy. And I don't think any of that's, that's not the problem for me. I think the problem for me is we, we finally get Captain America. He is, we, we, we get this really cool scene of him rushing things down and he's, he's, he's having, you know, we're, we're getting what we want. And then we're like, all right, now let's go take a break so he can be, you know, an American hero. And I don't think that they're bad scenes. I, I just think it ruins some of the pacing of the movie. I think the opening of this movie is so strong and does such a great job of setting up the characters and, and sort of putting you on this 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 upward momentum. And then it sort of stays level for a little while and then continues up as you get towards the end. Yeah, you know, for once, me... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I think once it gets to the scene where they are uh, attacking the bunker and trying to get all the prisoners out. That's where the movie really like starts to move again for me. Yeah. I honestly watching this movie, which again, I liked a lot uh, mostly because of Chris Evans, but I kept coming back to what you said in the Thor episode about you get Thor, you see Thor's powers and then you spend a bunch of time in New Mexico and then no Thor. And I think I, I felt that way in this movie. I didn't feel it in Thor. We, we disagreed on that. I agree with you this time where we get, you know, Captain America's powers and then not a whole lot happens. We, we establish the character and the character is really fun. So it's not terrible because I am seeing this Chris Evans, Captain America creation on screen and I love it. But I do think that once we get into montage zone and I have things to say about montage zone that are good, but I do agree with you, especially during the USO parts, it's just, Where's my Captain America? And we don't really see it other than in clips until close to the end of the movie. We spend a lot of time not getting to see our superhero. And I agree with you. I think it kind of messes with the pacing. And it doesn't doesn't make it a bad movie, but it's the reason that I don't have it like on the top tier of Marvel movies. Get in the zone. Montage zone. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't know that I I necessarily had a strong opinion about this scene until y'all just brought it up. I think the problem for me that I'm realizing with the, the number scene is that it is a good scene. Like it's a good montage. It's, it's an entertaining, but it does kind of take your focus off of the film for a little bit. And it almost feels at the end of it, like the only reason that they gave him that montage scene was so that he had, 50% of a costume for when he went to save all of his friends. And so it kind of feels like it didn't lead that much. It it didn't do that much other than, you know, give him that costume piece and also say like, Hey, look, they made him be a dancing monkey for a while. And that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. It feels like it's more paying fan service than anything else. And I don't, think i agree with the fan service if it's not in service of the of the plot of the movie now i can see go ahead ahead, Uh, i have so much i want to (laughs) say ladies first 
<laughs> so first of all, Robbie said, where's my superhero? It like it doesn't come till later. I feel like Steve has been the superhero the whole movie. He was a superhero when he was scrawny. He was already embodying what Captain America is supposed to be and what he is um, even before he got buff. Um, standing up for the little guy and all that. And then as for the actual USO scene, yeah, it's cheesy. Yeah, you might think it slows things down, but actually, you know, he there's when he becomes buff and then there's if we jump ahead to when he's the captain, he's leading these guys, they already respect him. How do we get to them respecting him if he's not first? I mean, Captain America is a very cheesy name in itself. So how do you get everyone to ex accept that as a real thing? And I think it the progression made sense that first they used him kind of as a um, as an ad, you know, a, a propaganda piece, Captain America, you know, buy war to, bonds. To, so people would buy war bonds and all of that. And then they show him on, you know, near the, the front lines doing a show for the men and they're all like, what is this? And they're throwing fruit at him and stuff. They think he's a joke. And then he proves himself. So then that Captain America name, everyone laughed at it at first, but then he proves himself and then it sticks and it's no longer a joke. It's no longer cheesy. So I feel like they needed that progression. You needed that scene of, of the cheesiness of the 1940s Captain America, you know, like from the comics from, from back in the forties, you needed that, to first establish the name Captain America and everyone getting used to that name. And then you needed him to prove himself in front of everyone in the military for that name to stick and be legitimized and, and to be able to move forward. Also, I love that song so much, Star Spangled Man. And I want to share my little bit of uh, nerd trivia that it was written by Alan Menken and David Zippel. And David Zippel actually worked with Alan Menken on Hercules. Boom. Which the movie Ooh. Thor was based on, as we established last week. <laughs> Full circle. What if the name Captain America, what if he was just made a captain? And then somebody was like, man, you must think you're captain of all of America right now. You're like some kind <laughs> of kind of captain, captain America. America. <laughs> it can't all be Gamma Gregs, okay? Yeah. <laughs> was Spangled Steve, now Captain America. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. My turn um, to agree with everything she just said, pretty much. Uh, this is Marriage. This is the basic of the reason we got married. Um, actually, Aww. one of our first, like, <laughs> when we first started dating, like, the one of the very first things we did was she came over and we watched Captain America. Like, like that's true story. Okay, but um, did you guys, like, watch the whole movie? Yes, did we did. It was, watch it? Or did you watch it? Yes, we it? did. She he, he was very scared to <laughs> be, like, affectionate at all. And when he started to be affectionate and then a roommate would walk in the door and he'd really jump away from me. <laughs> and by affectionate, I mean like had my arm around her, yeah. maybe kissed her head, you know. <laughs> Can't let the roommate know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no. That's Six cute. inches. Leave room for the Holy Ghost. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, but I think it's a great, well, I love going back to this going back to this movie being earnest and embracing that earnestness, the importance of being earnest. Uh, uh, they stop the movie basically for a forties musical pastiche, but they don't actually stop the movie because there is character development in it. You see him at first, he's not really buying this whole 
well, I wanted to fight and here I am selling war bonds. And if you go back to the conversation he has with Bucky back at the uh, Stark Expo, Bucky's trying to convince him, you could work in a scrapyard, you could do this. And he's like, no, all these other people are laying their, li- laying their lives on the line. What right do I have to do? What, what right do I have to do anything less? So he doesn't want to be the dancing monkey. He wants to be out there and fighting. That's why he went through this whole program. And yeah, the, the fame is getting to him a little bit, but he you can, you can tell he still feels like I'm not doing everything I could or should be doing, especially now that he's blessed with these gifts. Now that he has this super strength, he really could be doing more. Uh, I also thought it was a fun way to work in the original costume because that wouldn't fly in a, in a modern movie today. But by having it be this costume for this show, it works because it is literally the original design. And then they even work in the original comic book with him punching Hitler. Not only punching Hitler in the show, but they sell the comic book and it's the same cover. And, and that I know it's a fan service, but I don't think it's fan service that detracts. It builds up this sort of legend of Captain America and how America is seeing him, but how Steve himself is not seeing himself as this hero. It's, I should be doing more. I could be doing more. And I do love the bit when uh, he is actually performing for the uh, the 107th and they're not buying it. And the, and the guy shouts out, bring back, bring out the girls. And he goes, I, I think they only know the one song, but I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> it's just this very, uh, it's, it's such a great moment. It is, uh, it is pure Steve Rogers right there. Well, and that seed leads into Bucky or not Bucky, excuse me, Steve finally sort of growing some unrest in his role, uh, which it's, you could tell from the from his drawing of the the monkey that he, he had started to get some unrest, but he started to grow more and more restless with his role. He then finds out that a bunch of the 107th, which he knows from, and we know from earlier in the movie, that it's his Bucky's division, um, has been captured or has been killed in action. He goes to the general, once again, Agent K from Men in Black. Um, hopefully we'll get Will Smith soon. And he wants to know the status of Bucky. He wants to know if he signed Bucky's um, death certificate. I don't know if it's a death certificate. If he signed the letter that goes to Bucky's wife. Letter. There yeah. you go. And he said he hasn't come across that name yet. And he wants to know if they're going to go try to rescue the people that are over there. And the the general basically says, I don't know if he's a general, actually. I don't know if what his rank is. He's colonel. Colonel. The colonel, colonel says, Phillips. Um, colonel Phillips, you're right then says that no, you know, it's basically a suicide mission. So he takes it upon himself to then go uh, Peggy with Peggy's assistance and the assistance of Howard Stark to go and save everybody that is over there. Um, We then get a fun scene of Howard asking Peggy for fondue, which then becomes like a running joke throughout the whole movie about fondue and what fondue is and what fondue could be. Steve does not know what fondue is. He <laughs> thinks that it's something much more sinister, not sinister, but he thinks that it's something intimate, intimate. And right. as Howard says, fondue is just cheese and bread, my friend. Um, we then find uh, what will become Steve's band of merry men, uh, as well as Bucky. <laughs> um, Bucky, who had been experimented on a little bit, which will become important when we talk about the Winter Soldier because he then gets experimented on there. Uh, Schmidt pulls off his mask as he is battling with the captain and shows that he is in fact deformed and you see the full red skull, which Robbie alluded to earlier. We then get another montage of all these battle scenes and all, all these, these things that are supposed to 
sort of inspire you. I think, I think the, when I watch it, I think the idea was to inspire you and Angela, a, a, a big part of that inspiration, a big part of this movie in general comes from the score. And you wanted to touch on the score, at least just, just a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think Alan Silvestri did a really great job with the score. I love the Captain America theme. It's super appropriate. Like it definitely puts you in that 1940s, you know, America kind of headspace, you know, very, it's a very patriotic, triumphant sounding theme. And it really fits. Um, I feel like the whole score was very appropriate. It, it wasn't my issue with most Marvel films, probably all of them, honestly, is the 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 score that happens in between major character scenes you know like obviously when you see all the avengers on screen you hear the avengers theme or when captain america has a big moment you get the captain america theme um same with guardians of the galaxy all that but this the music in between on really any of the films is not that memorable um whereas like john williams scores from you know star wars Memoirs of a Geisha, um, lots of other films. I could sit and listen to the entire thing and be entertained. And it, I don't feel that way about any of the Marvel scores. But that being said, I do really love Alan Silvestri. I think he puts together really memorable themes. So this is one of my favorite themes of the whole MCU. I think it stacks up pretty evenly with the Avengers theme, you know, maybe just below it, but but they're both great. Um, so, but I, I think his score set the, you know, just the tone of this movie really well. It definitely, it, I think it worked well with, with it being a, a period piece. Chris, as our resident sound Lord, what are your thoughts on the score of this movie? Because I, I think I divert all sound topics over to you. Oh, that's, that's silly. Um, but pretty <laughs> much, pretty much what she, I, I love this score. I think the captain America theme, Maybe my favorite theme of any of the individual heroes in the MCU. And I think there's a reason that that was the first theme that was used in multiple movies. Because you hear it in Captain America, and then you hear it again in the Avengers. And maybe that's partially because Alan Silvestri was also the composer for the Avengers. But then you hear it again in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. You get a little bit in Ultron. Uh, You get it in Endgame. I think it's a memorable theme. I think the Captain America March, especially the one that plays over the credits is great. And I, I have a theory and this could be wrong, but my theory, the Captain America theme reminds me of the John Williams Superman theme because, and I don't know if this is intentional or not. I was actually trying to find out if it was, and I heard nothing. Angela knows a lot more about film scores than I do. So maybe she can back me up on this or tell me, no, Chris, you're wrong. The Superman theme, the John Williams theme, the dun, da, 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 da you can fit the word Superman into it. Superman. And I think that's part of what makes it stick in your head. The same thing can be said for the Captain America theme because it goes da, 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 da. And it's Captain America. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I've, my brain mentally fills it in and I feel like that makes it stick a little bit more. Like there aren't officially words, but there could be. And I've never so, those thoughts. Yeah. So for Thor, would it be like Thor, 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 Thor. It's fun that that's now his like theme. Like that's like his like default. Like you don't think about anything that has come before because that's now just associated with Thor. 
we talked about the the montages that we that had come up, uh, but just before that, we get the scene with Peggy Carter and Stark uh, giving Captain America what will become his trademark vibranium shield. We then get uh, assembling of his of his his band of merry men that I alluded to earlier, um, and the Howling Commandos, the Howling Commandos, yes, uh, as well as um, as Bucky, part of the the, the Howling Commandos. We get uh, introduced to a bunch of different characters. They then begin storming Hydra bases. Um, and sort of providing inspiration to the country as a whole as they sort of complete their missions. There's lots of video footage of it all, and it sort of has become an inspiration to the country. And Robbie, uh, you wanted to talk about a little bit about how this this piece of, of inspiration in the film relates specifically to the role the fictional character took, specifically in the 1940s during this exact time period. Yeah, it's very interesting that, to me, they took the theme of what Captain America was in the 1940s and put that into the movie in, I think, really clever ways. And yes, I agree with you that it kind of slogs down the film a little bit, but that doesn't mean it wasn't clever. Um, I, I think maybe pacing could have been done very differently, but this felt, at at once, it felt like this Captain America was A, what the comic books were to the real world, and what the character was within the comics all at the same time, and I thought that was very well done. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever been to the website superdickery.com, and if you haven't, yes. you should. <laughs> But it's a website for work. What <laughs> it is? It is it's super hilarious. dickery. It is a website that makes fun of Golden Age comics, and it started with the premise that on Golden Age covers, Superman was a dick, um, and that's absolutely true. He kills Lois Lane on the cover constantly, or teaches Jimmy Olsen a lesson. <laughs> yes, lots of teaching Jimmy Olsen lessons. <laughs> um, but honestly, Captain America is the same thing, and so I've read a lot of Golden Age Captain America, but not. Not because I actually think it's good, but because I think it's hilarious out of context. Um, but that theme has carried over into this movie. Now, he's not, you know, um, punching people that are literally yellow with fangs, but uh, it, it's got the same sort of concept of Captain America was propaganda. And that's what they made Captain America in this movie. He is propaganda to uh, to drum up the war effort. But also... All those comics in the in the first half of the 40s were Captain America and Bucky and, you know, Dum Dum Dugan and some other Howling Commandos maybe punch through a wall and go in and raid a base. Usually a Hydra base, usually with Red Skull, sometimes with, with Germans, sometimes with Japanese, but always a Hydra base. And the montages in this felt like, the, the storming the Hydra bases absolutely felt like just all of those covers from Golden Era... Um, Captain America comics uh, without the unintentional hindsight humor, um, but done in a way that it, it that's what it felt like. And I thought they they did a really good job of hitting on both notes of hitting feeling like it was 1940s Captain America storm and Nazi bases, but also the other montages, uh, you know, the USO montages that you guys so earnestly defended also served that same role of being what Captain America was in the real world. Um, and I just thought that was a very interesting concept for the film. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the um, I think the movie does a really good job of 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 staying true to itself, staying true yes. to its source material, and staying true to its time period. And I think that's just another reflection of that. And we've covered it a lot on this movie, but the movie is very respectful of its time period, mm -hmm. and it, it's one of the movie's strengths. And I think something like that is just a just another it's just another it's like a cherry on top of everything else the movie does to really serve the time period. We then move forward to a train ride, a train raid, I should say, where they, the, the Howling Commandos in Cap try to raid this train, and we get um, we end up capturing 
uh, Hydra scientist Arnim Zola. But unfortunately, we lose Bucky in the process. We find out in the Winter Soldier that he is now the Winter Soldier, and he has been frozen for just as long as uh, just as long as Steve sort of. I mean, yeah. he's like out and about, and then he sleeps and comes back. And we also got that shot of Bucky holding on the shield to foreshadow absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> I said the same thing when I watched the movie. I was like, "Look, it foreshadowed nothing because they didn't do yeah. it." <laughs> yeah, well, because at this point, as we all know, in Endgame. Sam Wilson, Falcon, is the new Captain America, as has happened in the comics. But before that happened in the comics, Bucky became the new Captain America after Steve was assassinated briefly. Because you can be briefly assassinated in comic books. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> and they were definitely setting up... They actually... Sebastian Stan assigned to a huge deal. It's like nine movies or something. Like He, he has one of the larger contracts. So you could tell that at that time, they were thinking, oh yeah, we're going to make him Captain America someday, possibly. And this was before Sam Wilson became Captain America ever in the comics as well. And I think the way that the series has evolved, I think it does make sense that Sam would be Captain America because Bucky, I think, as Winter Soldier has a bit too much. He works better as a Winter Soldier than he does as Captain America, I think. Yeah, Uh, but But you're right. It just felt so obvious, like until about. Um, one movie ago, the MCU just felt like obvious. I oh, he's going to be Captain America. He's going to be Captain America, and then, then it didn't make sense anymore. But it, it's weird yeah. going back and seeing like back when we all thought, yeah, he's going to be Captain America. I would almost love because I think they've and correct me if I'm wrong. I think the the way they've laid out the MCU is that Falcon and Winter Soldier don't necessarily like each other that much, right? They like work together and they work, you know, they work okay together, but they don't necessarily like have love for each other. They're not, they don't, I don't think they see eye to eye on a lot of different things. What I would love to see out of the Falcon Winter Soldier series is them both try to be Captain America at the same time. And I think they will. And sort of battle with that and battle of who is the one that should be and who is the one that's, that's best. Um, but I, I digress. Like a, Go ahead. Like a duo that trades off. Like they'll have some combo moves where they throw the shield to each other oh my to God, that'd be eliminate so cool. bad guys. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing their relationship evolve because the bits that they have had in the movies, they actually have not had that much together. They spend all of Winter Soldier being on opposite sides of the battle. We get a little bit of them in Civil War, but it's very much butting heads Mm-hmm. and you almost get this sense of jealousy as like, he's my best friend. No, he's my best friend. Uh, you know, and I, and then we get a little bit of them together in infinity war and Endgame, but not enough to actually get any sense of how they feel about each other now. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that evolve, especially because Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan will play Falcon of the winter soldier. They have a lot of fun together like when they're doing press for these movies. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun to see that relationship. You ever just want to be around? They, they, everybody seems like they have so much fun filming all these movies. And I just want to yeah. be like there while they do it and just like experience the fun. Like, just, I just want to have fun with these guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, when we then move forward, Schmidt, the Red Skull moves forward with his plans. He takes a, a bomber with Tesseract weapons on the course for New York. Oh, no. Obviously, we've got Steve Rogers, Captain America, coming to save the day along with his band of howling commandos. Um, Rogers boards the plane to stop Schmidt. He says uh, he finally gets a kiss from Peggy. Good for him. Unbeknownst to him, it'll be the last kiss he gets from Peggy for a very long time. And he does not get one from Tommy Lee Jones. He doesn't get one from Tommy Lee Jones. Explicitly. If he plays his card right, he might get one from Peggy's niece. (laughs) (laughs) 
Can I throw out a theory? It's it's not that important. Yeah, absolutely. That I, I had watching the movie today. So um, prior to Steve boarding that plane, um, it, he and the Howling Commandos have this like, well, actually just him. He rides in on a motorcycle and he's followed by all these Hydra guys it, like through this forest because they're heading for the Hydra base to storm the base. Um, and it felt like, so Joe Johnston, it was mentioned earlier, he worked on the original Star Wars film. Uh, he won uh, an Oscar, I believe, for Raiders of the Lost Ark, I want to say. And he was also art director on Return of the Jedi. And I, I saw that motorcycle chase and I kind of thought, it had like yes yes it feels like the you are not scene. you are not alone that was yes. almost almost in my notes it feels like the speeder bike scene what yeah. i did write is that there's a wilhelm screen and yes scream right in that even scene. with a wilhelm screen yep <laughs> <laughs> no i'm with you i thought the exact same thing while watching the movie no. also one of my favorite lines is right before steve boards the plane and and peggy kisses him and then Tommy Lee Jones going, I'm not kissing you. That's all. <laughs> that is great. I like Ken Tankerous lines. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we then move on. Schmidt disappears after grabbing the Tesseract. Okay. I just want to talk about this just for a moment because I yeah. get I get the purpose of it because we then move on. We then see him in ev- eventually in Infinity War. He's then transported somewhere else. But in terms of the fight, it's just kind of like a cop out. Like it doesn't feel like Cap actually beats him. It feels like he like was like, ha, and then he's like, oh no, this was a bad yeah. idea. Rather you mean than much it like Raiders of the, the end Lost of the Ark? fight. Sure, absolutely. I, I think it's gotta be an homage. That's Maybe. gotta be what it is. Sure. Because we got that line at the very beginning when he finally first gets a tesseract and he goes, and Zafira digs for trinkets in the desert, which is definitely a shout out to Raiders. Right. Uh, and he's talking about how, oh, he's looking for the Ark of Covenant, but I got a Tesseract right here. Uh, it kind of makes sense that Red Skull's downfall would be his own, like that he was overreaching, that he was too full of himself, too cocky, too drunk with his power. That's what Erskine sets up at the very beginning when he's describing him using the serum and how it just brought out his worst qualities. It I makes also sense. just want to say, I, I had been saying, I think you can confirm, I have been saying for years that when yeah. Red Skull disappears and they show this thing like shooting up into the cosmos that he was being transported somewhere that he's not gone. I just didn't think they'd ever actually come back to that. Mm-hmm. I thought we were done with Red Skull. Um, like, I didn't uh, know like when Hammer is like, uh, like when Hammer's like, you'll, I'll, you'll pay for this. And then you're like, no, yeah, you won't. <laughs> exactly. I yeah. didn't think they'd ever actually return to that. And then when he shows up in infinity war, I could not, oh, could not believe it. We both gasped so loud when yeah, he stepped good. out. Okay. And I was like, <laughs> I called it. We've talked <laughs> so about this before, but when Steve has to return the soul gem, that means he has to go and be face to face with the red skull, right? Yep. I want to see that. I, I want to see, see that. that. Well, and and I loved Endgame, but one of the things I didn't like was there wasn't even even a 30-second moment of, well, you saw a guy with a creepy red skull for a face and, and Steve's realization. Like, just that moment would have been nice. Yeah. And here's the thing is, Red Skull is known in the universe, especially to S.H.I.E.L.D. members. They, mm-hmm. I mean, you can debate the canonicity of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but when they talk about HYDRA... 
they talk about you learn about oh it was founded by johann schmidt the red skull who did this this and this it's it's not like it's the secret history of the marvel universe it's just yeah this is american history (laughs) (laughs) but i eduardo i agree with you maybe it's an homage and maybe it fits with the character but it's kind of a disappoint disappointing final confrontation for a superhero film I think in this setting, it makes sense, though, right? In the retrospect, it makes sense and it's cool. But if I would have seen that movie before I saw a lot of the other movies, I probably would be disappointed by that, too, because the fight scene is cool for a while. It's it's it reminds me a lot of Inception where their oh, yeah, when it's gravity is just changing and they're on the ceiling for a little while and then they're not like that part of the fight scene is really cool. And then it's like. You know, you were playing with your toys and your mom's like, dinner time and oh, I got to end the story right now. It's over. No, there's not a drawn out conclusion. I got to go eat dinner. Right. And I, I think if I would have seen it originally without all this context, I probably would have been more disappointed. But as it stands now, it, it's it works out really well. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed this movie significantly more the second time around. And I think because of things like you said, like I think we can sort of come back with rose colored glasses because after all of these years, we've all fallen in love with Chris Evans and his portrayal of, of Steve Rogers. And it's just fun to watch his origin and him just, you know, have fun in a movie like this. And I think that's, um, I think that's a good point that if we were watching this the first time, maybe there'd be a little bit, it maybe it'd sting a little more the first time, but now that we've watched it and we've watched all of the MCU, it, it, it might fit a little better. We then come to find out after Schmidt disappears, after the Red Skull disappears, that the plane is headed for New York, which we already knew, but there's not a lot we can do that Steve can do about saving the city without sacrificing himself. And obviously, in true Steve Rogers fashion, that's exactly what he does, where he lowers the plane into a big thing of ice into the ocean. And we get this really heartbreaking conversation with him and Agent Carter where they're talking about a dance that was promised. And for those of you who, for whatever, if you were listening to this and you haven't seen the rest of the movies of the MCU, number one, don't wait for us. Just go watch them right now. But if you Sorry, haven't, we spoiled everything. Already. I know. But if you haven't, <laughs> just know that they pay this off so well. It takes yep. a really long time to get there, but this gets paid off beautifully so much so that two of the people in this podcast use that very song as part of their wedding so you know it it, it definitely works successfully in the end but knowing what you know it's still just as heartbreaking to know that these people that have finally found affection for each other can't be together and that's got to be the end credit song right for the podcast yes yes when we get to that when we get to that episode yeah (laughs) okay because it's not in this movie. It's going to make me sob at the end of that uh, that episode. Oh, uh, yeah. It's not at all. It's not, not at all. Yeah. It actually first shows up in Winter Soldier. Bailey yeah, had never okay. seen the movie before, and she was waiting for the song to come on the whole time. She's like, is this where they're going to put the song on? And I was like, I don't know. I, I don't actually remember. I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, my bad. The Forget I said anything. a long, long time. <laughs> or it's been a long, long time. We then get the sort of the aftermath of all of this. We get to see everybody sort of continuing on with their lives. We get to see the Howling Commandos um, getting drunk and having, you know, pouring one out for their lost homie. We then get to see Howard Stark finding the Tesseract and, you know, keeping that off to himself. And then we move on. The war's over. The war's over. And then we move on to the future. Where we see Cap wake up in a room that he thinks is his own. Actually, he never thinks it's his own time period because he sees right through it immediately. But it is staged like his time period. He then goes out into Times Square into the most... um, If you were... Okay. 
if you were going to take somebody like Captain America and you were going to put on this facade, why would you bring him to New York City to like right outside Times Square? Probably the craziest looking place you could possibly bring him to and think, you know what? If he leaves this room, it won't be that big of a deal, right? You couldn't have brought him to like Kansas or something in like a field so he wouldn't be like freaked out. If only they had like some sort of facility upstate. <laughs> if only. <laughs> or if perhaps they didn't re play a rerun of a baseball game that already happened in his yeah, in his lifetime they couldn't have figured that out <laughs> you got- also in addition to that the woman that comes in totally looks like she's from the 2000s like she just has a look she doesn't look yeah, at all like she came from right. his no her hair looks very 2000s her like makeup and her lipstick look very 2000s like i would have been off put just looking at her like What's all this new stuff you got going on? And if Steve had ever opened the window, he would have seen, oh, that's a painting out there. In fact, <laughs> he didn't need to open the window. He could just look and go, that's a painting. Yeah, how they long was that do. facade supposed to work? Like, just a few more minutes than it actually did? Like, what was their plan? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know what their plan was. <laughs> Maybe it worked longer than they expected it to. <laughs> it's funny that Fury says, oh, we just wanted to soften the blow. When I think really starting Cap off with a lie like that putting him in that room i i feel like that's even worse than you know just having him wake up in a normal room of that time i mean i buy it nick fury is not like great with people of all people to do that too is how much he lies so it's it tracks yeah (laughs) but it sucks Uh, also fun uh, i something i noticed all the broadway posters this confirms that daniel radcliffe exists in the marvel cinematic universe (laughs) <laughs> i didn't know there's a big there's a big how to succeed in business without really trying poster with his face on it buying cat at one point so yeah i want uh oh. let's get harry potter in mcu let's just do it let's uh, want to talk about the most ambitious crossover of all time yeah let's let's really do it if we're gonna do it let's go earth has wizards now <laughs> <laughs> um we then get this really nice uh post-credit scene after cat says that he had a date he had to go and it's really sad. Really, it gets. Me I really said bad. that on the intro episode, but that gets me every time. Yeah, that is just the perfect ending to the movie. It's it's bittersweet, kind of heartbreaking. Brings it back to the character. It you get the you get the wow the spectacle of oh this man is out of time, and then you get immediately here's what it means to him. And the as fact a person. that that's the first thing he thinks of. Yes, you know and. It's just so heartbreaking, but it makes their romance all the more powerful. And Joe Johnston said in an interview that I watched um, a little bit earlier today, like that they really earned their romance because it really it took place over quite a span of time in this film of his whole like World War Two career. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. the fact that when he's freed from the ice, the first thing he thinks of is his date with her. Yeah, it's right. the opposite of what Yes, it's the opposite of Thor. We, we talked about that last episode. Well, and I think that moment is important to the movie um, because obviously he's going to survive the final crash, which means that you're setting up this tragedy and the fact that he survives kind of would cheapen that tragedy unless you give it an anchor point where the fact that he survived, but it was 70 years, has to matter. And that line makes it matter. Um, and so I think that's very important to still giving weight to the end of the film, even though he doesn't actually die. Mm-hmm. And yet he still has a weird thing going on with her niece. Don't remind me. Just... We don't talk about that. 
Let's save that for a future episode, mention it once, and then never mention it again. Yeah, it's just one episode we have to talk about it in. We'll talk yeah. about that when we get there. Yeah. Kill this <laughs> joke. <laughs> uh, put it to sleep for 70 years. We get the uh, we get the post credit scene with Cap hitting a punching bag over and over again, and he's clearly frustrated about his predicament. And then Nick Fury letting him know that he has a mission for him, setting up what will be our next movie, which is going to be, I dare say, our biggest episode in history, uh, The Avengers. So far. Can I say something about that post-credit scene? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't Same. either. Yes. Same. It's Thank you. It's, it's literally so a trailer. It's, it's literally yes. a trailer. Where it is. Titles and say, next summer, some wait, wait, assembly hold on, required. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I watched that post credit scene and I thought that was just somebody who added that in post in YouTube. No, no that's that was the actual, that's post-credit, the actual scene. post-credit scene. I feel the uh, same yes. way about the Ant-Man post-credit scene as well. I This one is worse. Uh, the Ant-Man one, yes, it's literally just a scene from Civil War, but it's at least Captain America and Falcon talking about, right. you know, alluding to that thing that happened earlier in the movie. Whereas this is just a trailer. And I don't know about you all. I am a weird person uh, who thinks <laughs> yes. about how I'm. My wife agrees. Uh, Correct. Uh, <laughs> Correct. No, I, I am a weird person who thinks about if I ever have kids, how am I going to show the movies that I love to my kids? And I think a lot about, oh, what order am I going to show them the Star Wars movies in? Oh, how am I going to introduce them to the Marvel movies? And I have already decided, and I have not discussed with with my wife yet. But when we get to Captain America, I'm not even going to show them the post credit scene oh, yeah. because it's just a trailer. Um, they're going to say, but we watched the credits for every, every other movie. Why not this one? I said, because it doesn't matter. We're just going to sit down and watch Avengers right now. Uh, we Thank you. Because it just doesn't work as a post credit scene. It works as marketing. I think you uh, should do a random number generator. <laughs> <laughs> for Star Wars? We'll for starting both. with Captain Marvel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, don't. Don't get me started on all those people that say, oh, here's the real order you should uh, watch the movies in. Uh, I feel like that's that's a discussion we certainly could have. We are uh, watching them in the real order right now. Point. Yes, yeah, generator. <laughs> First we'll watch Thor The Dark World, then we'll watch Avengers Age of Ultron, then we'll watch Iron Man. Then, the problem uh, with then that we'll was you watch Thor The, the Dark World. Yeah, if we start with Thor The Dark World, you won't watch it anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm only a couple episodes away from knowing about that movie, you guys. Sorry. I'm so excited for you to actually like it and get mad I at all wait. of us. <laughs> it's going to be hilarious. We sorry, sorry. Hard. Let's keep going. We're, we're derailing. Yeah. All right, so we've touched on our MVPs for this movie already, um, but we can dig, dig down if anybody has anything else they want to say. Uh, for me, it was definitely Chris Evans as Steve Rogers in this movie. I think he grounds the movie in a really... Um, evocative way. I think if you think about what my, for anybody who doesn't know, I think Ant-Man is probably my favorite MCU character. And I think the reason I like him so much is because of how real he feels to me and how relatable he is to me personally. And I think the realness of Captain America of Steve Rogers is what I enjoy about this movie the most. And I think it's, it's endearing to the point where I, 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 I want to model my life after this person. Um, Chris and Robbie both have, uh, Chris Evans, Steve Rogers portrayal as their MVPs as well. And I think we've touched on it at least a little bit, but if anybody, yeah. either of you guys have anything else you would like to say, say it now or forever hold your peace. Well, so interestingly, just last night, completely by coincidence, I was reading the three-part story arc in Amazing Spider-Man where Carnage gets introduced. And at the very end, there's this part where J. Jonah Jameson is berating 
Spider-Man that, yeah, he took down Carnage, but people still died. Venom is now on the loose. And he says Captain America wouldn't wouldn't have had this happen. And Spider-Man says, yeah, because he's Captain America and I'm just a man. And he goes in this little montage about I have to make choices and I make mistakes and I fail because I'm human. Captain America is not. And Captain America is not in the comic at all in any way whatsoever. But the impact of who he is as a character is felt in that universe. And I think that that impact is carried over in the MCU because of the performance of Chris Evans, because they how they wrote um, Captain America. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. He becomes kind of the gold standard of what the Avengers are going to represent to the people. And and Chris Evans is just perfect for that. And I, I can't really say anything more than I've already yeah. said. Peaches, you've already talked it, about your love for Erskine. Yeah, I gave it to Erskine, like partially to be different from everybody else, but also because he's just so genuine in all his scenes. And, you know, he Captain America wouldn't exist. He would just be scrawny Steve Rogers, if not for Erskine. So I'll give it to him just so someone else gets a little bit of the little bit of the pie. But I do genuinely really like Stanley Tucci in this movie. So. Oh, yeah, he's... And Angela, one last love letter to Peggy Carter. <laughs> I love you, Peggy Carter. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we have to say about Season that. Season three, please. How does uh, how do you think this movie fits in the MCU? I think it's fun. I think it is the best uh, prologue for the MCU we could have possibly gotten because it sets up a lot um, and it does it in a time period like it is. It feels like it's part of the MCU, but it also feels like it's not part of the MCU. Like it doesn't feel like an like even the, the other two Captain America movies don't feel like this movie. This movie mm-hmm. feels like its own its own separate thing, right? And I think that works to its credit. It does so like plant a lot of the seeds for the future movies. But I think what works on this movie is how it sort of doesn't fit in the MCU, how it sort of stands on its own, and I think that's what makes it so successful. Yeah, it's definitely its own movie. Um the hindsight thing that really stood out to me is that moment where they capture Zola and like, boy, does that end up being a mistake? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. That sets up every bad thing that happens from winter soldier on Yep, pretty much. I, I think that it, one of the, one of the cool things about it is how it ties in with Thor and it ties in with Iron Man, both th- through the Tesseract and uh, Hitler and Schmidt's interest in Norse mythology and Teutonic mythology and all of that, as they say, you bring in Howard Stark as a major character. We've already met Howard Stark in his, as an older man in Iron Man two. And I think Dominic Cooper does a great job playing the younger charismatic Howard Stark. And you can see, Oh yeah, this guy is Tony's dad. I, it makes sense and it, it works really well, but you also, I feel like, you could have not watched any of the other movies up to that point, and it still works in its own thing. It mm-hmm. it ties together really well, but it doesn't feel like you've you should have done your homework. It's like okay, yeah, the, they they all stand the Howard Stark stands on his, on his own as a character in this movie. The uh, the Norse mythology stuff that works with it, I think. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Hitler did have sort of this weird interest in the occult and mythology. Yes. I don't know how much. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So we see that used in a lot of like science fiction nowadays, but it was based in fact. So it makes sense that this would be present in a World War II movie, especially a science fiction one like this. So it doesn't, it's a fun connection if you've seen the other ones, but it's not beholden to you having seen it for it to work. 
Uh, and I think that's some of the best way you can use the the MCU connections in a movie. All right. Let's talk about our ratings for this movie. Yeah. I will give Captain America, the first Avenger, eight falling Buckies out of ten. <laughs> oh, boy. Splat. <laughs> Peaches, I think it was funny, um, or I think I thought it was interesting when you were saying that you feel really different from us on writing this movie. Uh, I completely agreed with you, actually, that I didn't have that many takeaways from it. And also, our ratings are very similar because I gave it seven fondues out of ten. <laughs> you gave it seven bread and cheeses out of ten? That sounds amazing. <laughs> I gave it seven and a half missed dates out of ten. Mm. <laughs> Poor guy. I gave it nine and a half assured victories out of ten, which that's something. Not a German accent. I know, but that's what he says. He goes, "Our victory is assured." I know, and I love it. I'm saying it's not a German accent. <laughs> it's a Red Skull accent. I gave it ten dancing monkeys out of ten. Boy, you guys ten out of ten. You guys are real high on this movie, aren't you? Yeah. Well, I, I told you that this was in both of our top fives. It's like I said, Iron Man 2 episode that we did. I have nothing bad to say about this movie. I Anything people have to say about it, I can defend. <laughs> we'll let the audience. You're like the Captain the America for Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as rankings are concerned, drum roll, everyone. For those of you that have been listening to the saga that is this podcast, on Eduardo's list... The Incredible Hulk has finally been dethroned. Whoa! Thank goodness. Captain America is now at the top of my list. Dude, if you would have said that you liked Hulk more than Captain America, I think I would have quit on the spot. (laughs) That would have been the end of the podcast. Like, one of these had to dethrone Hulk. I can't believe all of them didn't, but man... You... What do you mean you can't believe all of them didn't? You have one of... Hulk uh, in front of one of them. I know, but I mean that we've had... Since since Hulk, we've had four other things that could have been in front of it, and <laughs> until now, none of them have. That's true <laughs> for you. So, so for me, the standings right now are uh, Captain America, then Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, and then Iron Man Two is the caboose. <laughs> yeah, I put uh, I put Cap right after Iron Man, so it's second on my list right now, and I th- I think. If there wouldn't have been those moments where I felt like it dragged a little, it probably would have sat in line with Iron Man. So other than those moments, uh, it ranks pretty high on the so far list. I had Captain America followed by Iron Man and then Thor and then Iron Man 2 and then Hulk. Indeed. (laughs) I I have Captain America. Thor, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, and Gamma Greg. Gamma Greg, the incredible Gamma Greg. <laughs> Thor is still my number one. Um, I don't like it. I don't like it way more than the other movies, but clearly more than the other movies. Um, then Iron Man is my number two. Then this movie, Captain America, is my number three. It's virtually tied with Iron Man. It's basically just what am I in the mood for? Um, but Captain America's third. Uh, then Incredible Hulk, and then at a distant last, Iron Man two. I cannot wait until we get to the end of this so we can see how different our lists are because already we are all diverging on very different paths. Mm-hmm. And I am excited for the future of the show to see where everyone's list I ends feel, up. 
I feel like we're all going to have a new number one next week, and I will be surprised if we don't. Yeah, I'd be very surprised oh, if yeah. all of us unanimously don't have a new number one next week. It will be interesting to see. Oh, man. <laughs> Chris. Oh, no, man. I, I, no, I'm not saying I... I Foreshadowing. I, I think, no, I, I, th- I think you're probably right. Well, uh, yeah, I'm not going to be allowed back, am I? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, like, I... Th- is actually something that I for years it's like what's your favorite phrase one movie and I'm like mm, it's it's very close and but that's a discussion for next week the gregarious gamma Greg <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's gonna do it for this uh, thank you everybody who has listened so far we really appreciate it we um, we've got a lot of episodes kind of stored in the vault right now so they're going to be continuing to come out consistently every single week so if you are uh, concerned maybe fridays maybe if you're concerned about content stopping fear not because we've got plenty more headed your way um, if you would like to email the show you can email the show at assembly cast at assemblyrequiredcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is assemblyrequiredcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow the show, you can follow it at assemblycast on Twitter. Uh, Angela would love to have any conversation with you that you would like, even if it's not about the MCU. If you wanted to talk about what you're having for lunch, I'm sure Angela would love to chat with you about that. <laughs> you're just throwing that out there. Just huh? throwing that out there. Better be, better be cheese and bread. <laughs> better be fondue. Um, or a steak. Or steak. Shawarma. Cow. Yeah, yeah. What's in it, cow? <laughs> <laughs> so that scene always makes me hungry. Gator Sacks twenty ten D underscore Peaches Phil Kid three. Uh, insert Angela's Twitter handle A B C D Eduardo one. Angela really underscore man. Hartman. Angela underscore Hartman. Man, it's a really easy one too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna do it for everybody. We love you three thousand, everyone. See you next week. Celsius. Thor Thor